Hey everyone, this is Jackson Swearer, entrepreneur and navigator for Startup Hutch and your host for The Hot Seat. This month, we're talking to Bud Conklin of Conklin Cars. This is a success story about a long-standing business that was founded in 1941 in Hutchinson, Kansas and currently operates in three locations, including still being here in Hutchinson. Bud and I talk about some of the opportunities that they've taken advantage of through the years and also about operating the business as a fourth generation owner and the transition that they did between the third generation and the fourth generation. I think business owners and anyone looking to start a business will find lots of lessons, both generally about business and also about what it takes to be successful when you're trying to transition a family owned business between one generation to the next. Take a listen. Well, thank you for being here today with us. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what business you're here to represent? Uh, my name is Bud Conklin. I'm here with Conklin Cars. We've been in the car business since 1941, fourth generation business, uh, founded and headquartered here in Hutchinson. So, Well, that's great. I'm looking yeah. forward to talking to you today about uh, what it takes to create a longstanding, successful, locally owned business here in Reno County and also... Hopefully you mentioned the fourth generation, you know, talk a little bit about those transitions between generations. But just to get started, tell us a little bit of that history. What has happened and what has been the growth of Conklin Cars since it was founded? So going back, uh, it was founded in 1941, basically right, um, terrible timing, right at the start of World War II. My great-grandfather had moved here for a job and he had um, worked as part of the county commission and had an opportunity to buy a Buick dealership here in town, so he took it. And then, of course, World War II started, and Buick stopped making Buicks, and they started making tanks, so he was out of inventory pretty quick. So he ended up uh, hopping a train and going around to all over the country buying cars from individuals and having them shipped back to the dealership here so that way he could have something to sell people. And that carried him through all of that, and eventually my grandfather joined in and... Uh, then my dad and his brothers, and eventually just kind of, we've kind of slowly expanded, and now we represent 12 or 11 brands in three different locations in Hutchinson, Newton, and Salina, and uh, me and my brother and my cousin, Scott Jr., and my cousin-in-law, Tony Hoover, are the fourth generation of our family that are going into this, and, you know, it's it's been a real blessing, and it's fun to you know, work with your family. There's obviously family challenges that you come along with any family business, I guess, but uh, it's been it's been really great. And we're looking forward to serving Reno County and, you know, the rest of Kansas for a long time. Talk to me a little bit about some of the the opportunities that you've been able to latch onto within that business. What has allowed your business to grow from a Buick dealership in one location to representing what did you say, 11 brands? Yeah. And, and, and be in three different locations. So um, really just kind of the keep it simple, stupid philosophy, I guess. Uh, just focus on taking care of people, not overcomplicating it, and providing a good experience that is honest. And um, we're not perfect. No one is. No car businesses. Um, no business anywhere is. But we do our best to take care of people and people realize that and um, give back to the community. We've been really involved with a lot of stuff. And I think it's 
whenever car dealerships specifically, they get a bad rap because they try to overcomplicate it. They try to be tricky and uh, mis- mischievous and work against against customer interests in order to try and make more money. And it's stupid. It doesn't work. Um, for some reason, you still see it. And gimmicky, it's unbelievable that, that stuff still happens in the car business because if you've been in it for long enough, you've seen it, you just know this falls apart. At some point, you stop selling people cars because they don't like buying from you and they don't like servicing with you. And so if you just kind of keep the mindset of staying customer focused, what can I do to make this good for the consumers? What can I do to make the experience better? And if you just stay honest, like what's the point of lying to people? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't, you might make more money if you are crooked or if you do something shady, but not long-term, it falls apart, it's a house of cards. So it's that at the core of it, really, that's kind of the secret sauce for us. It's been really good and, you know, we've been really fortunate, uh, you know, the all of our customers and clients from around Kansas, we have fourth and fifth generation buyers, you know, like, oh, my great-grandparents bought, my car, bought their cars here and we're still buying cars here. We hear it all the time. And uh, also change, I would say that not only that, but... Um, adjusting to change as it comes and adjusting to the market as it changes, like the internet and online car buying and all the different ways that um, buying and sourcing vehicles has changed. We've really done a good job adapting to that and not fighting it. And people see that. And I think that, um, I mean, you have to, but it's been something that a lot of dealerships have um, tried to fight and they're no longer operating, you know. So having an emphasis on that has been really good for us. I want to dig into one of those specifically, at least, um, which is the evolution of internet car buying and the impact that that has had on your industry. Can you speak to that a little bit? And I think that's a that is an issue that relates to business more generally. So uh, hopefully, go ahead and talk about the car business, of course. But I'm hoping that there'll be some more general lessons about adapting to the internet and and how that can be beneficial to you. Sure. The uh, so. In every industry, they're kind of looking at the Amazonification, I guess you would call it, of any kind of retail industry. Um, cars being a big ticket item that are expensive and have a really poor public perception of the car buying experience. That was ripe for someone to come in like a Carvana or Vroom or there's you know five or six different companies that claim that they can do this well. And it was a ripe environment for them to come in and try and make this look. It's so simple. It's so easy. And really, it's not. And so there are a lot of things from that that have come about that have been positive changes for the industry. Things like um, more of the processes going online as opposed to just searching for vehicles online. And um, people statistically, people are not doing the full purchase online in mass yet. There's only about 4% or 5% of all car buyers everywhere that are comfortable enough to do the entire process online, put in a loan, get their trade evaluated, everything, start to finish. But the majority of people want to do a good amount of the process online, and it's really forced car dealers to accept that change and embrace it and um, kind of move that way. Now, we, I can't speak to all car dealerships everywhere, we have the capacity to do the entire deal online. And uh, most of our manufacturers encourage that ability. They kind of work with us with the ability to do that. 
legally there's complications. You just got to make sure that you work within the guidelines, but we have the capacity to do that. Now, the majority of customers don't want to do that, but um, where all this kind of comes in is that, so you have Carvana who has kind of pioneered this idea and all the car dealers are catching up and it seems like it's such a forward business model and that it works, you know, everyone thinks it's great. They've actually been outlawed in seven states for selling cars because they cannot provide title on time. And that is a huge crime. Now, that is one of the services that dealers, local dealers, create for people is that they uh, they do all the title work. They chase it down. They provide it in a certain amount of time. And Carvana has gotten into some really, really hot water on doing things ethically, legally, and um, there's people driving around for two years without a title to their car. It's a huge risk and liability, and then the loan that they set up on that car doesn't actually even get funded because the um, bank, you can't prove that the person owns that vehicle because they can't go get it registered, so they're driving unregistered property. It's a huge liability, and so whereas that has changed a lot, and it looks like it's morphing you know, totally online, the companies that have done it have done it poorly. And if you were to go online and look up Carvana legal issues, it would take you days and days to get through all the cases they've run into. So it's a, it, but we've all had to adapt to it. And it's been a good thing, I think. One of the things that you were talking about there related to lending, and I know that you have to also negotiate and you have relationships with manufacturers. Um, can you speak a little bit to how important business to business relationships are um, as you've been growing uh, your business. I, I think most people think about car buying as primarily a customer facing business, but mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of business to business interactions as well. Speak to that a little bit. Sure. Well, there's a lot of businesses that we work with in all on both sides of the channel of our business. So both in purchasing vehicles, there's a lot of businesses that purchase vehicles and service vehicles with us, but also there's a lot of vendors that we work with that help um, keep our business running. And so it has, and obviously the manufacturer's big business, there's a lot of, um, we have to maintain good relationships there and we have, you know, and part of the maintaining a good relationship with the manufacturers is that you continue to provide positive experiences for their customers and deliver on what they want you to deliver and be the face of their brand. And if you do that, then they're thrilled with you. You know, they will help you out however they can. Right now, it's harder for them to get everyone cars, but um, when they do get some, they try and give them to you and, you know, all that. And But there's also other businesses like banks, like you mentioned. We work with a lot of banks, both local and national. They Each manufacturer has their own fi- captive finance arm, and they want, you know, we work with them, and they've been really good about trying to help us help our customers fairly with good rates. And having that, the ability to do that allows us to shop around for rates for customers. So let's say you come in to buy a car, you know, we agree on a car, agree on a price, all that stuff. Then we can take your information and we can pick out the four or five best lenders for your situation that we think are going to give you the best terms because we have a great relationship with these people. We know what they want. And then they can basically compete for your business. And so the analogy that I use is that you know, or the example that I use is that you walk into your bank that you've trusted and used for years and years and years. They give you a loan on a car. Well, that may be the only time that they see you, you know, on a big purchase for the next five years, 10 years, whenever you either buy a home or a car or something like that. Whenever we go to our banks, you know, we may finance five, six cars a day, eight, sometimes 10 in a day at each location. 
And so each bank knows that if they don't step to the plate every single time for us, they may not get another look at a customer that we're going to have inevitably in the next hour, the next two hours. And so they know that they have to really be competitive for that person's business. And um, it gives us a lot of leverage that normal customers don't have. You know, they say lending trees thing is when banks compete, you win. And so it's, yeah, you're right. They That is true. And so it's uh, having good relationships with those people and the banks helps, but that only works. You can only, the relationship only gets you so far, so far if you aren't really um, providing a good experience for customers. Because if you're not doing that, if you're being crooked, then banks don't want to be attached to you at all. You know, they don't want to be partnered with you and neither does the manufacturer. So it all comes back to that for us. And um, it really drives our business in that way. I want to take a little bit of a pivot here and talk about some of the challenges that are related to business. And I'm hoping that while business owners are sort of notorious for wanting to keep things positive and not wanting to share the, <laughs> the challenges that are going on in their business. Um, but I'm wondering if you'll open up a little bit about some of the challenges that you have seen. And I know you're, you're still kind of in the newer generation of ownership within the business, but can you reflect on what are some of the challenges of business, maybe relationships that have gone sour or attempted expansions that didn't work out or, or anything like that, that you would want to share? Um, well, there's always, you know, there's always a lot of things. Um, you mentioned challenges. One of the challenges that every car dealership is dealing with right now is obviously getting vehicles, new vehicles for sale, um, just because of the myriad of issues that have been happening in the supply chain and logistics. And one of the things that happened this past year, you know, we have two Honda dealerships and uh, one here and one in Salina. And so one of the things that just came out of total left field is so for, for the Honda Odyssey and the Honda Pilot, those are the two large SUVs that they are large seven seaters that they sell. And um, they source their wiring harnesses, you know, they source parts for these cars from all over the world. And so the wiring harnesses, just something small that holds wires in place, uh, take a stab at where they source those from. Cambodia. Ukraine. You, oh. So uh, imagine there you that. Go. Like no one saw that coming at all. And that's a, you know, that's a complete mess obviously over there right now. And so, but then Honda has to scramble. Well, then they can't build Odysseys or Pilots. And that even goes beyond the microchip shortage that's going on right now that has affected all industries everywhere. And then there's also a trucker shortage um, because of COVID. And then there's a backlog of vehicles that are stuck in certain plants. And so... It's been, it's been a real challenge to get people, when somebody orders a car and they ask us when they're going to see it, we really can't give them a straight answer. It's really tough for us to nail down a time, and even when the manufacturer does give us a time, they can shift that. That's not set in stone. So we have a lot of the cars that have been ordered that show that they are in transit, but in, actu in actuality, they are stuck somewhere at a shipping yard or in between truck spots, and it's just a... It's been a real challenge on that end. We've been really fortunate that our customers have given us a lot of leeway. There's a handful of customers that have not, and we're, we feel bad whenever that happens. It's largely outside of our control, but sometimes customers just don't have time to wait. And say, okay, I understand that, and it's, it's tough. It's, in a perfect world, we could give everyone exactly what they want when they want it. Um, just right now, not that way. But for the large part, people have been really forgiving about this and knowing that's not our fault and patient and... You know, if it takes a year to get a car sometimes and 
we've had situations where it takes longer than that because manufacturers just cannot build what they want. So they're just willing to wait. And we've been trying to deal with that. Parts have been an issue also for body shop. Uh, we actually have one of the larger body shop operations in Kansas. Um, definitely in our markets, uh, Salina, Newton, and Hutchinson, we're the largest body shop operation, each of those. Um, but all of our insurance partners that we deal with, you know, we're taking on business from all over the place and really grown that. But one of the constraining factors is getting parts for just getting parts to repair cars. So that has been a big challenge for us. And again, we do a, um, having a positive relationship with our insurance companies that we deal with and also the manufacturers of the parts. Communicating well with our customers has been helpful there, just trying to be on the level with people. Just people are understanding. It's very difficult. It can be frustrating trying to work with people. So that's been challenging. But I mean, there's there's a myriad of things. You could say that, you know, even if you were to go back, there was, gosh, years and years and years ago, decades ago, we there was an opportunity at one time to open a Honda dealership in Emporia. Apparently, this was in the early to mid-70s, right when Honda first started kind of coming onto the scene in the United States. And we we apparently turned it down. We were we were a Honda dealer here already in Hutchinson, and we turned down the opportunity to do that. And I don't know why they did that, but looking back on it, there's a lot of things you can look back on and say, dumb, why didn't you do that? <laughs> you know. But at the time, my grandpa didn't really think that was a great idea. Even though we had had a Chrysler, we had had a Chrysler Plymouth um, Dodge dealership there in, in Emporia, and so apparently that didn't work out, but there's been a lot of things, you know, um, we had a, we had a dealership in Kansas city that we, um, that I actually operated for 10 years or that I've worked at for 10 years, operated for five of those. And we really enjoyed that. And we thought it was a great location, great opportunity. And we were doing well there. We recently um, sold that two years ago now and to a buyer that really, really wanted a Cadillac Buick GMC dealership. So we thought that was a great opportunity to get out and, um, so that's one of the things that we've that has been a change and a real blessing for us. And gosh, I mean, there's always challenges, storms. You know, whenever a hailstorm hits, that's a challenge. There was a microburst that happened here in town a few years ago, and we had a piece of our Honda sign that got lodged in the side of our building, which was exciting. And uh, that you know, that sounds like it would be an interesting day, but probably yes. not a fun one. Yeah, it was. You know, there's a like I said, insurance partners are important, <laughs> and so. Um, you know, there's always there's always challenges, and uh, but I, it we've been really fortunate to be able to mitigate those. And um, in the car business, a lot of the challenges that businesses can kind of encounter are self-inflicted, and so we just do our best to avoid those and just keep it simple. Let's not overdo it. We've been really really fortunate for a lot of things, and our people are great. Our employees are excellent. We have a really good team, and. Our average tenure is extremely high versus car businesses in the United or in the United States, definitely in Kansas. Our turnover is a lot lower than in all areas of our business. And so having that kind of a seasoned team, they can how to handle things whenever they come up. And so it's been really good for that. I want to transition now to the business transition question. And I know that a lot of family-owned businesses struggle with finding somebody to take them over, either in the next generation or even another outside buyer. And yet here in your family-owned business, you have a group of four people from this next generation who are coming together to work together to run the business. Talk to me about both the transition from one generation to the next, um, how you managed that. It, you know, did you do that all internally? Did you have to hire a bunch of lawyers? What does that look like when you're trying to do that? 
uh, as much as you're willing to share. Sure. And then also, I'm hoping that you'll speak a little bit to how you formed a team, an ownership team uh, with your brother and your cousin and your cousin-in-law. Yeah. Um, so really for us, we have been, in my generation has been enormously fortunate to have our parents, my dad and Scott Sr., the whole focus for the entire time, honestly, that we've been involved in this, whenever we committed to doing this, was we need to trans at some point we will need to transition this so that way it is equitable, fair for everyone. And that way, when my generation is running it, which we are now, they have the tools and resources necessary to operate and that they can do it effectively and smart. Now, where a lot of businesses fail and car dealerships fail in a transition is when everyone starts looking out for their own best interests. And there has to be a level of, there is some like, hey, is this going to adversely really affect me? And, you know, you have to keep that in mind. But for our entire ownership group, the the whole thing is how can this, how can we make this the best for everyone? And it's not just one person, it's for everyone. So that comes down to, you know, how my dad and my uncle exit, you know, the operation and how how can they be compensated fairly for what they've done and what they've built? How can we get into it equitably so that way we are not completely handicapped as we come into it and just digging ourselves out of a hole, you know, and whenever you have the third generation that if you have the situation where a third generation wants the moon and stars and everything else and what they feel like they are owed, quote unquote, versus the fourth generation, which is trying to actually get into it and, you know, really start to ramp up, that can cause a lot of friction, a lot of conflict, especially if there's no communication, which is another issue is that everyone's looking out for their own best interests. So they're not communicating what they're, what would be the best thing for them or the group is. And so, all of us have been very open and honest about what we want and what we want to have happen, and everyone's in total agreement about it. And we have not had to have any legal issues or anything like that. We, and we don't think that we ever will. Everything is very clear, black and white, as to what everything is valued for us, what the third generation gets, what the fourth generation gets or is working toward. And so that is where things can fall apart really fast. And it also helps that all of the people that are involved in the ownership of the business are operating the business. That's one of our things that we kind of, it's a big deal for us is that the people, we don't have any outside owners because the outside owners, their interests don't align with the people working in the industry. So if we had an investor from Colorado, he just wants a paycheck, right? So if we're doing things that go against you know, that we think are good for the business and the future of the business, but they don't generate the immediate paycheck for that person, then that person will blow everything up. And so all of our interests are aligned. All of the communication is open, honest, and all of it is geared toward we need to make this transition happen from the third to the fourth generation so that way everyone is okay and that the business can continue and has the capacity to continue. So that's where a lot of businesses fall apart, and it's uh, it's unfortunate to see it, but um, we've been really lucky in that way. 
One thing I want to pick up on and uh, just spend a little bit more time with is the amount of time that the transition can take. And I know you mentioned that you were working at for 10 years and operating for five years Mm -hmm. at one of the dealerships. Talk to me a little bit about when you started developing the plan for the transition and and how long it took, or if you're even done completely with the transition, what the timeline is for completely having the ownership shift from the third generation to the fourth generation. We are largely done with that. And there's some paperwork that we still have to get completed, but largely it's done. And so the um, we're all equal partners in it, and, but the operation aspect of it is done by generation four. And then my uh, dad and my uncle are uh, they are partners in it, but they aren't really operating much anymore. And so the um, that's all largely completed. And so the um, that's all done. The timeline it was it was a long time, like a little over a year. Planning on it took a lot longer than that. Well, there it just was, just went like five years ago. Did you start planning? Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, probably it was it was something where whenever it was, you know, all of us have been in it for long enough now. That this is we all knew that this is what we wanted to do, and that's about when the conversation started happening. And the conversations really did not start getting um, more in depth until probably about, you know, a couple years ago. And then they maybe two or two and a half years ago. And then they really started digging into the paperwork, logistically, what does this look like legally, all that. So that's been good. Was there a relationship between the decision to sell the Kansas City dealership and that transition conversation starting? Did this happen about the same time? Fairly similar. The The transition conversation had started a little bit before that all started. But when that opportunity came up, totally unexpected, we were like, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We need to do that. And so when we did that, then that kind of also helped like, okay, well, now that we've got now that we've done that, all right, now what does this look like going forward? All four of them are back in Hutchinson, so now what? And so, it, you know, who's going to do what? How are we going to – going back to your other question is how do we make it work with four business partners that are all kind of managing three locations and all that? We're lucky in that the car business has so many different business units, and so – and they all are big and important, and so all of us have kind of taken different aspects of – the car business, and that's what our focus is. And it gives us enough so that way we each have something relevant, important, where we definitely need to succeed in. And But it, we don't step on each other's toes. You know, there may be areas where we work together on things, but no one has a say over the other person, what happens. That person manages their section of the business, and then I manage my section, and we may work together, but no one is boss of another person. So that's that helps a lot. It's whenever there's, you know, one person over another that creates tension. It's an issue. So we've been lucky in that way. What's one thing that you would really want people to know about getting into business and buying a business that maybe they wouldn't expect or that they might find surprising? Either something good or something that can be a challenge. So there's a lot of things. One I would say is time. You I think a lot of people that I have talked to that, of course, I didn't start this business, but I've talked to a lot of people that have started businesses and kind of, I've looked for parallel connections between my experience and theirs. And time is a big thing. A lot of people underestimate how much time it takes to do a lot of the minutia stuff, um, paperwork, legal, cash flow, all that. There's there's a lot of things there that people aren't expecting. Also cash, uh, going into the cash, cash is king. 
a lot of people, that's one of the reasons why a lot of businesses fail is because they don't manage their cash well. It's not necessarily that they had a bad business. It's that they just ran out of money to pay their bills in that moment. They were expecting bills to come in or they were expecting receipts to come in. They didn't come in, couldn't pay their bills, had to shut down. And also how important your employees are, making sure they feel valued, career pathing them, giving them a vision for their future. And so those are things that a lot of people don't realize um, whenever they are starting a business or operating a business is that, yeah, you do have to, those are things that you have to tackle and you may be good at what you do in your business, but if you're not good at all the other stuff, it may not matter how good you are at, at your core business. You're not good at the other side. You're just not going to work. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. Any final thoughts that you would want to want to share with listeners? Um, we appreciate every customer that uh, walks in for any reason, sales, service, body shop, um, any of it. It's The customers have been the reason why we've been around since 1941 and why we will continue to operate and serve Kansas. Um, expand. We want to expand and we want to buy more car dealerships. And the only way that we can do that is if we continue to provide excellent experiences for people and if customers continue to come back to us. And we're hoping that we can just continue to do that for you know, forever, honestly. So, um, we appreciate it. And thank you to anyone listening that's ever done business with us. We'd sincerely appreciate it. And I am so sorry for the commercials that Sam and I put out. I know that they are, uh, cringy at times, but we appreciate you, uh, watching and sticking with us for it. So, <laughs> well, and I certainly, there's a tradition, uh, with Conklin cars of the, uh, the cringy, I think is a good word commercials. Um, but they do have their unique and particular style. And I'm glad to see a new generation of folks uh, taking on that mantle. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> well, so thank you, uh, Bud, for being in and chatting with us a little bit today. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the opportunity. And also, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. I also need to thank Bowercom for the cover art and Christopher Acker and Salt City Sound for help with recording and posting the podcast. If you'd like to find out more about Startup Hutch, you can find us on our website, startuphutch.com, or on most social media platforms at Startup Hutch. We hope that if you're a business owner, you'll also consider joining the Startup Hutch Idea Exchange, our private Facebook group where small business owners in Reno County can share ideas about business and ask each other questions. Finally, I hope that you'll do us a favor by sharing the podcast and also by letting us know if there's anybody that you'd like to have on the podcast in the future. You can reach us either in the comment section on Facebook or by using the contact page on our website. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next time. <laughs>